You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. Today we're going to talk about Karen Silkwood, was born in 1946 in Longview, Texas. She was the daughter of Merle and William Silkwood. They had they moved after she was born to Nederland, Texas. So I think I put somewhere here, it's like 30 miles east of Houston or something like that. Oh, okay. So she was the oldest of three daughters. And, okay, this is one of my favorite parts because, for some reason, she kind of reminds me of you in the way that people describe her. Like, okay. Oh, gosh. She was spunky. She was headstrong. (laughs) She was stubborn. Mm -hmm. She was adventurous. She enjoyed camping and outdoor activities. She was a firecracker. And people would say, like, when she got a hold of something she would hold on to it like a pit bull like no matter what it was (laughs) (laughs) well 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 but she usually used that to stand up for people like she kind of always just kind of pushed herself and her like whatever was going on with her to the side to help other people out and use that like will I guess you could say that force of will for good. She was also described as being a tomboy, and apparently she never worried about her makeup or appearances when she was a kid, and the reason being was apparently she was like a natural beauty. All the boys loved her, and all the boys loved playing with her, not just like... It's not like they have a crush on her. She's their buddy, too. Exactly, exactly. They wouldn't, like, goo-goo over her. They enjoyed hanging out with her and being friends yeah. with her. She played volleyball. She was on the volleyball team in high school. She played, she started playing the flute in fourth grade, played up through high school. She was an A student. She was a member of the National Honor Society. And she was like extremely interested in chemistry and science. She eventually joined the the chemistry class and she was like literally the only female in that class like (laughs) literally all the other girls were taking like home ec and stuff like that and she was here she is in the chemistry class with all the boys (laughs) she worked as a candy striper when she was in high school at a local hospital and then she got like really interested in medical stuff and so she After graduation, she enrolled at Lamar College in Beaumont, Texas. She had a full scholarship to study medical technology. I mean, and like people would describe her as a freaking pistol. She was outspoken. She would tell you exactly how she felt about you, whether it was good or bad. Like she was always like defending someone for something. She was, people now consider her an activist. So she met a boy named Bill Meadows in church. He was younger by a year, right before she went to college. They had a summer romance. It ended in August when she actually started college, but they wrote each other throughout the entire year letters back and forth, you know, like old school snail mail. They ended up deciding that they wanted to run away together and elope. So she actually quit college, her first year of college. She never ended up getting her medical technology stuff done because she ran away to elope with Bill Meadows. However, they were actually too young to get married at the time, and no one would marry them because they were under the legal age limit. So they came back, and they just went around telling everyone that they got married. They didn't actually get married. They just told everyone they did. They believed her, but nobody liked Bill. I I don't, I haven't found any actual reasons of why no one liked Bill, other than the fact that they were just too young to be eloping, even though they really didn't elope, but you know. 
everyone kind of shunned him. They do, they wouldn't speak to him at all. And they kind of shunned her a little bit. And so they just ran away. They moved all around Texas. And this is another thing that kind of reminds me of you. So they would just go on trips around the country just because they could just <laughs> to go on an adventure, just to see things <laughs> and like just to go and do and be in the world. It's just crazy. <laughs> yep. And so they moved around Texas for a while in between the sightseeing around the U.S. <laughs> and Bill eventually got a job working in the oil industry. So they had two kids while they lived in Texas. And then eventually they moved to Duncan, Oklahoma, where they had their third child. Here's where it gets kind of a little sad. Karen was home, staying home with the kids, raising the kids. And Bill worked at, I believe he, he also worked at a motorcycle shop. He met a co-worker there whom he fell in love with. It was one of Karen's friends. Bill, she found out about this. She started suspecting about this affair that he started having. She finally confronts him about it. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm not quitting because I'm in love with her and I'm going to leave you for her. And so by this time, they had been together for seven years, even though... They had, quote unquote, ran away together and eloped. They hadn't actually gotten married. But since they had lived together for seven years and they had kids together and all this. They're common law. Common law. Yeah. And so he told her, she asked for a divorce. He told her that he would not give her a divorce unless she agreed to give him full custody of the three kids. I'm sorry. You're cheating on me. Like, all aboard the petty train, so you're going to have an affair and you want the children. Exactly. (laughs) Get out of here, Bill. So I know. What's sad, too, is Karen's father's name was Bill as well, so I can't just be like, damn you, Bill, because her dad was apparently a really nice guy. So, (laughs) Damn you, Meadows. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) She had been out of, well, she hadn't worked anywhere since she was a candy striper, and she didn't get to finish college and so she was just like you know what I'm gonna go get a job that's what I'm gonna do I know that I can't take care of my kids because I currently don't have a job and I can't afford to you know take care of them on my own so okay you can have them uh, she actually moved 60 miles to Oklahoma City where she got back into the healthcare career track mm-hmm. and started working at a hospital there in Oklahoma City. Well, she was trying to like figure out, well, what do I want to do? Do you want to go back to college? I can't really afford that. I mean, when she went the first time, she had a full scholarship. Yeah. And now, you know, you're going to have to pay for it on your own and like all this stuff. And so she's thinking, well, I really want to work in the science field somehow. I'm doing medical stuff now, but science was really her like true calling. And so she heard about a plant that was hiring. This plant was called Kerr-McGee. It was a plant in Cimarron, Oklahoma. It was like 30 miles away from Oklahoma City, I do believe. Like, I've heard of Kerr-McGee. Kerr-McGee at the time was like a, a nationwide kind of thing. It was, basically it was a corporation rich, powerful, energy-based conglomerate that ran a factory for fabricating nuclear fuel out of plutonium, which, as we now know... Superman. (laughs) Pretty much. Is that not where we were going with that? (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure, because it's one of the world's most deadliest poisons. Like, I mean, they didn't really know that much about it. This was 72, 1972, Mm. when she went to work for them. They dealt... Mostly in inorganic chemicals and petroleum, natural gas exploration. Um, One of the owners, I believe, Robert Kerr, he had been a powerful U.S. senator from like 49 to 63. And Mm. so there was like really powerful people in charge of this really powerful nuclear production facility. The Cimarron facility specifically manufactured fuel rods that were used in nuclear fission reactors. 
They contained these fuel rods with particles of plutonium, an element created from uranium atoms and the most toxic substance at the time that was known to man. So we're talking like a pollen-sized grain of plutonium can cause cancer. Pollen-sized. Like if you put a period on a piece of paper, that's how big it has to be to give you cancer. It's so small. And they even suspect now that quantities even smaller than that can give you cancer. It's insane. And not to mention radiation poisoning and all that Mm -hmm, good stuff. mm -hmm. This plant... It was 20 miles outside of Oklahoma City, and it was on a 900-acre site next to an already existing uranium plant. And uranium is <sighs> radiation poisoning and cancer. And actually, I think that the type of cancers were like liver cancer, bone cancer, skin cancer. Uh, sometimes it would just straight up make your kidneys shut down like if you had enough. Not good. No bueno. So, after being hired at the Kermagee Cimarron Fuel Fabrication Site Plant near Crescent, Oklahoma in 1972, as a lab tech, she decided that she would join the local oil, chemical, and atomic workers union. And she ended up, she was there for like three months, and she ended up taking part in a nine-week union strike at the plant. It was pretty much like a your basic worker strike like we're not making enough money you know stuff like that Mm -hmm. the strike kind of ended because well i mean nothing nothing really came out of the strike people weren't getting paid it'd been nine weeks they needed to go back to work there was no resolution whatsoever and so when they started coming back to work there was already this huge divide between the union workers and the plant and the plant managers themselves. Like there was already some hostility there. Oh yeah. No. Was hazard pay a thing in the seventies? No, I don't think so. I, I don't do think not so think either. so. No. And, and like regulations and stuff like that, like nothing was as strict as it is today. Like right. they actually had no idea at this point in time that plutonium or uranium were even dangerous like substances. so dangerous okay yeah. oh that sucks because it's bad yeah I, mean, I know it's not just ingestion it's inhalation it, that's exactly what it is so if you're not being i mean you have a habit of breathing what can you do it's easy to not eat something <laughs> but it's kind of hard not to inhale yeah that's true and the the other thing about it was is they had um they had masks and stuff that they would tell them, like, if you go in and, like, it's the potency is high in there, you have to wear these masks. But the thing about the masks is most of them didn't even fit correctly. I mean, it was mm. just kind of like a one-size-fits-all situation. Mm. Yeah. So, and plutonium, the most harm that it can do is when it is breathed in. After the strike ended, remember, she had only been there for three months before this strike happened. And she was apparently so vocal and outspoken during this strike that when the strike ended, she was elected to the union's bargaining committee, which was only three people. (laughs) (laughs) She was the first woman ever to achieve that position at the Kermagee plant. I love it. She's a real Sally ride. She's I love her. Really. I love her too. She was assigned to investigate health and safety issues. Here is a list of the things that she came up with over the next several months. She discovered what she believed to be numerous issues, including exposure of workers to contamination, which we all suspected that one. She also found faulty respiratory equipment, improper storage of samples, Spills that were not cleaned up, like ever. Falsification of records. Inadequate training for the workers themselves. Like, they just kind of threw them in there and was like, okay, get started, and didn't train them at all. (laughs) Health regulation violations. And even some missing amounts of plutonium. For for what? It's highly radioactive. (laughs) And it just went missing. 
Oh my god! I wonder if it wasn't since since it was such an unknown substance. If someone was like, "Man, this shit might be really worth something someday," you know, like it's platinum or diamonds or whatever. They think they're on like the cutting edge of something, and they're like, "Hey, that's what you get for being a thief." I really hope not, because like, what would they do with it? They would like put it in there, like bury it outside, like I they might, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just hang on to it until they see if something comes from it. I mean, it was the seventies, man. You think about when they do figure out that this stuff is, like, disastrous, and they have all of it, and they're like, oh, shit, man, what am I going to do with it now? Like, I that can't one, just... That one gif of the little Muppet thing with the side eye, like, uh, uh. Yes. <laughs> Oopsie-daisy. <laughs> that is one thing that can happen. It, like, changes your genetic code. Mm-hmm. It mutates and you. you. Yeah, it, it really does. Yeah. I mean, it it's especially more common in like your children if you have kids after you've been exposed and stuff. But, <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah. So she had found that just plutonium was just going missing. Didn't know where it was going. She believed also like they had um, they had showers. They had two showers in the facility that were there to allow the workers to take a shower before they went home, so that they could kind of decontaminate themselves before they left but there were only two showers and there were hundreds of workers and so she was like hey man maybe get some more showers in here too so that we can all take a shower before we go home to our families anyway in the summer of 1974 Silkwood testified to the Atomic Energy Commission about having been contaminated, alleging that safety standards had slipped because of a production speed up. She was appearing with other union members. So they had, before she had got, gotten there, this plant had taken on a contract for the government. They had gotten behind on this contract. So by this time, she's there, they're way behind on this contract. And so they actually start making the workers work 12-hour shifts seven days a week to catch up with production. And over and over and over, there are leaks and spills and all of this stuff, which usually would mean that the whole plant is to be shut down so that everything can be uh, decontaminated. Right, hazmat, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Except they never did that. They just kept going and uh. and made them kept going because they didn't know the risks that they were being exposed to. They just made them kept going right through it. The thing about radiation is that you you might not know for years and years and years that you've been poisoned by radiation. It really depends on how much you get at a certain point in time because... People are like, oh, well, you get exposed to radiation poison. You're just going to know immediately. You will not. You will not know immediately. You may not know for years. You may not know until your kid is born with a third arm. (laughs) You don't know. (laughs) So the plant fell behind on this contract. They started speeding up production. They started making people work harder. Therefore, more mistakes were made because nobody was really trained appropriately. I mean, these... (sighs) They didn't really ask for resumes when they hired people. They were just like, do you want to work here? And the workers were like, yes, please. And they were like, you're hired. Like, there was no, have you worked in this field before? Have you, do you know what plutonium is? Like, none of that. And so these people did not know what they were doing. They weren't even trained to do the jobs that they were doing. There were so many mistakes happening. So during the week of November 5th, 1972, Karen was repeatedly exposed to plutonium radiation, like just over and over and over because of this production. Some people were working 12 to 16 hour days. Some people were working straight through for months and months, no days off. Oh my gosh. Speaking of that, they had a game that they would play, the workers. They called it the see who gets hot first game. This is so insane to me. Wow. So <laughs> see who gets hot first. Mm-hmm. And by hot, they meant see who gets covered in plutonium first. Because they were working so hard that if you got contaminated, they would make you go to decon. They would basically put you in a shower. They had somebody in there scrubbing you down with all these different chemicals, one including bleach, just like straight to the face and all over your body. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
So they mm-hmm. deconned you. However, you got to go home for the rest of the day. So because these workers were worked so freaking hard, the only off time they could get is if they purposefully exposed themselves to plutonium so that they could get the rest of the day off. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Do you want to die? They didn't know that. Yeah. They didn't know that. Boy. She became pretty outspoken about these conditions that they were working in. And she was seeing some of the people around her, some of her friends. She actually had a really good friend that was living with her at the time that worked at the plant that she had met there. She also had a boyfriend who worked at the plant that she had met there. And his name was Drew. And she really liked him. And uh, she was seeing, (laughs) yeah, she was seeing all of her friends and these people. Some of them were like getting really sick and they were spending a lot of time not at work. So she became really vocal and she was also the head of that little union thing. And she was like going around with literally a pad of paper and a pencil asking people questions and they didn't like that. I mean, she would third degree every supervisor she came in contact with. So they transferred her to the metallurgy lab where she worked alone. Wow. They put one supervisor over her over her who was not even in there in that department with her. He was like down the hall or whatever. What she would do is there was a quote unquote glove box. You know, the best way to describe this, you might know what it is, but to our listeners, the best way to describe this, um, if you've ever seen like a preemie baby where you have to put there's like this box over them. And you have to put your hands through into these gloves just to handle them. So that's kind of what she was using. It was a glove box. And what she was doing is these rods were being produced. They would come to her and she would use this fuel, this um, glove box to check these rods, which were packed with radioactive plutonium pellets. She was checking them for faults where the rods were sealed shut to make sure that they weren't leaking. In there by herself doing that, literally handling now, handling plutonium pellets. So on the night of November 5th, she was polishing plutonium pellets that would be used to make these fuel rods for a breeder reactor nuclear power plant. At about 6.30 p.m., there is an alpha detector mounted on her glove box. Basically tells her when she pulls her hands out if she's contaminated or not. It's like a little alarm that goes off. Mm-hmm. it goes off so according to the machine her right arm is completely covered in plutonium so she performs a routine self-check <laughs> i know right how stupid is that a routine self-check a self-check made by people who don't even know what they're doing <laughs> and the word routine like that was an everyday thing you just do it no problem <laughs> just covering plutonium, plutonium level yeah. fine mm-hmm Yeah, so she's doing this check. She finds that her body contains almost 400 times the legal limit of plutonium contamination for the time. (sighs) We know now that literally any plutonium contamination is too much. Literally any. But at the time, there was actually a set amount that was legal for you to expose your workers to. She was contaminated with 400 times that. So upon further inspection, tests revealed that the plutonium had actually come from inside of the gloves. Like the part that touches her hands, not the part that touches the plutonium. So here's where my first conspiracy theory comes in. Uh Uh-oh. How do you contaminate the inside of gloves. Okay. Either she was contaminated somewhere else when she stuck her hands into the gloves, but that is not the case because the detector would have gone off the minute that she, like if it came in with her. So I suspect that someone during that shift came in and contaminated those gloves from the inside. I'm just wondering, I'm wondering how her glove box was built because there could be a perforation in the gloves or where it connects to the box. 
I'm glad you said that because they actually tested that theory and found that there were no holes, okay. no leaks, no nothing like that, that just all of a sudden the inside of the gloves were contaminated. To the point of that, that to the level point of, of 400 times. Yeah. To me, that's suspicious. You don't get that much contamination. Like I can understand if you, let's say you go on break and someone else is contaminated, you get trace amounts on your hands or whatever. You take them back, you put them, put your hands in the gloves and now they're contaminated on the inside. For it to be 400 times the legal limit for plutonium, just in her right arm alone, something's not right there. I couldn't agree more. Like I'm just, I'm speechless. I'm just like, I don't, how, just how? She was decontaminated, like, immediately. And, again, every single time they're decontaminated, they're thrown into a shower, they're stripped buck naked. All kinds of chemicals are used to wash them off. They've got some powdery stuff they throw on them. They have literal straight-up bleach that they scrub their skin with. She's now done this, like, several times. She's like repeatedly exposed to plutonium this whole week. Bleach itself will chemically peel your skin. Absolutely. Yeah. Imagine having to have your skin scrubbed like that multiple times over and over and over. You know how much you would hurt just at the end of that day? And these people were so scared that they were going to lose their jobs that even though that they were deconned that day they returned to work the next day even though they were probably in horrible pain their eyes probably burned so bad from the chemical and all the the stuff and the, from the decon shower <laughs> and the bleach just from breathing it alone you could be sick yep i can't imagine the headaches oh my gosh no and then you have to come back to work tomorrow for 12 to 16 hours seven days a week nah man no thanks i'm yeah. out they sent her home, and this time they sent her home with a testing kit because the plutonium levels were so high this time. They sent her home with a at-home testing kit to collect urine and feces for analysis. Ugh. She brought her samples back. They found that they were heavily contaminated with radioactivity, as was the apartment that she lived at at the time that she shared with her friend that worked with her. No one could say why or how that radioactivity had gotten there. So they go in because all of this radiation is found, all of this plutonium exposure is found in her apartment. They go in and they take everything. They bag everything. I mean, I'm talking everything. They took her clothes. They took her furniture they took her pictures they took her toothpaste they took all of the food out of her refrigerator they even scraped the paint off of the walls they deconned her entire apartment it was left bare bones she had nothing when they were done with that it's suspected that the plant came to her after that and basically told her that they would pay her and find her a new place to live and refurnish the home if she would write a statement saying that she did that to herself, that she knowingly contaminated her own home and herself. And it is suspected that she told them to politely go fuck themselves, and this is what led to the downhill spiral. Right after that, she took a trip to Washington, D.C. with two close friends to speak with the union officials. This was in September of 1974. This is when she found out for the very first time ever that plutonium was severely dangerous and could cause all of these X things that we've talked about. Up until that point, no one in the company had ever told any workers that any of those things could happen. As a matter of fact, they had a health and safety pamphlet that they had handed out to people when they first got hired. Nowhere in there did it say that pl plutonium was a dangerous substance. 
if it's not a dangerous substance, how come I have to use a glove box? If it's not a dangerous substance, how come there's an alarm that goes off? How come I have to check myself for levels of radiation? How come you're bagging up all my belongings because I came home? Have some radioactive? Yeah. Why is it? If you didn't know, then why are all these things already in place? That's a great question. And that's actually the questions she was asking that they didn't want to answer. And they didn't want other people to hear her asking. Huh. The the manual that they handed out actually had in capital letters on it. It said radiation is safe in capital letters. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they just wanted to make people complacent so that, I mean, think about it. If people knew that this stuff was that dangerous, a lot of people would not do that job. And then how would people manufacture these things and then how would they make bazillions of dollars off of it they're literally making billions of dollars off of people dying so that they can make these things she went to washington dc she spoke to union officials they told her about plutonium they were like oh honey (laughs) no no because that can kill you and she was asked like all these different questions Uh, Did anyone ever tell you this? No, of course they didn't. Okay, and here's where she brought up one of the biggest issues uh, at the time. I mean, this is one thing that without any training, she had a problem with. She didn't know about the plutonium, but she did know about this. So when they had transferred her and she was working on her own, she brought up an issue because what they would do is they would x-ray these fuel rods that she was handling. They would x-ray them. They would do this because the x-rays would actually show potentially dangerous hairline cracks that could possibly leak plutonium. But someone, her supervisor, hint, hint, had been messing with the data. The data was altered in a way that would allow the rods to pass inspection basically okay she was supposed to inspect these things she was supposed to inspect them and then take an x-ray she would send her findings to quality control her supervisor and that person would then say either yes these things can be released or no they can't they don't pass inspection everything was passing inspection even things that she knew for a fact she had found that should not have passed inspection. So she brought it up. I am I am put here for like QC and you're overriding whenever I say, hey, there's a patch job done here. What? Exactly. What? I guess they, they thought that if they put her there by herself, then she wouldn't be able to talk with anyone. She wouldn't be able to converse with anyone or hear, you know, what was going on in other departments or whatever. Because, you know, they had her secluded off. And then they thought anything that she does find, you know, we'll just have so-and-so patch it up. I have a feeling that they wanted her there so that they could watch her. So that they could make sure that she wasn't spilling any sort of beans. She wasn't riling up the other workers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so that they could keep her th- their thumb on her, basically. Because there's more of a threat of her going public with all of the stuff that she's seen in there. If they fire her, they let her go. She doesn't work there anymore. So it's just a way to keep her under their thumb, I felt like. Yep. The union officials tell her that basically the quality control that she's been doing on these fuel rods. So, I mean, this is like some crazy science stuff. So let's just... I'm going to bring it down a bit and and say, basically, these fuel rods that she was inspecting, they go into, like, into a nuclear reactor. Mm -hmm. It helps the nuclear reactor run. If you put one into a nuclear reactor that is faulty, that leaks, that has damage, or anything like that, basically what you get is Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. And they told her this. This is a big deal, and I'm really glad that you brought it up up to us. And they kind of asked her if there was any way that she could get some sort of documentation. Can you, like, compile, basically compile evidence of this 
against your employer. And so she's like, well, I mean, I can try. Like, I don't really know how I'm going to do this, but I mean, I can try to do it because I mean, she's an activist at heart. She wants to make sure she's like, at this time, it's 1974. Chernobyl hasn't happened yet. Uh-huh. And just FYI, Chernobyl also had a lot in common with with this entire case because we're talking about inadequately trained personnel, people who didn't know things were so dangerous. There's so many similarities. It's ridiculous. And this was almost 10 years apart. But basically, she knows something can go boom. (laughs) (laughs) And so she's like, all right, well, I'll try to get evidence of it and see what I can come up with. And they say, well, if you can get evidence and bring it to us, I am going to try to set you up with a reporter and we'll try to get this out to the people and see if we can't get this shut down taken care of she tests again positive for plutonium even though and this is the weird part because she was basically put on i guess you could say desk duty that day because she had tested positive so much they put her on desk duty she'd only performed like paperwork duties that morning yet somehow she tested positive again for plutonium and she was giving given at that time one of the most intensive decontaminations that she'd had yet. Like they freaking sprayed it in her mouth. They sprayed it in her eyes. Oh my I mean, God. on November 7th, she goes back to work upon entry to the plant. She was found to be quote unquote, dangerously contaminated. She was apparently even expelling contaminated air from her lungs. Oh my and during all this, her boyfriend, I think at some point, let, he he was working at the plant. He actually had quit the plant because she was getting into, like, she was going down a rabbit hole and he didn't really want to have anything to do with it. Wow. Nice pick. He left town. <laughs> I'm just saying, he didn't want to stand by her. He didn't want it. Like, he just, he was out. Guys, I'm gone. Do you have a conspiracy about that? Someone has to think that she's telling her housemates, especially him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, just pay one off. You can kill the other. Yeah. Like, yeah, I have a lot of, I mean, I even have a conspiracy theory about this last time they said that she was so contaminated that she was, uh, it was coming out of her lungs. Like when she would talk, when she would cough or whatever, I have theories that the last really intense decontamination was actually contamination that they were actually contaminating her when she was in decon i got theories all over the place man but yeah i mean it is pretty suspicious that her boyfriend would just up and quit and then i mean he completely like he was kind of like staying at her place and he just like took all of his shit and left town i mean he left town he came back later i think not long i want to say it was like the day before her death he came back which is kind of also odd and he and the roommate were tested for contamination even though they were living both of them were living in that apartment that was so freaking contaminated neither one of them were contaminated now that's weird that neither one of them had any signs of contamination any signs of plutonium or radiation anything like that Nobody would ever fudge those numbers for any reason. I mean, they're no, already right? they're already fudging her QC. You know, I get yeah. Like, who who the hell says? So she's the only person showing up that's this radioactive. It's allegedly all over yeah. her house, but the people she lives with, everybody else is fine. So it's like, so are you just making this and like you're you're setting us up for an excuse for her to die? Is all you're doing? Basically, yeah. Someone had asked her how she thought her apartment had gotten contaminated. She claimed that she thought someone was trying to contaminate her at the plant. And she suspected that someone had put the contamination inside the cups that they sent her home with to take her urine samples in because the highest amount of radiation was found in her bathroom And that's actually where she had accidentally spilled her urine sample 
And later, when she took other urine samples at the lab, they showed much lower contamination. So she thinks that they contaminated her, like, on purpose. But Kerr McGee would claim, and this is so stupid. This is probably the stupidest thing that I have heard this whole thing. They claimed that she smeared stolen plutonium on the bologna in her fridge and ate it. And that's how the plutonium became ingested. Like she did it on purpose just so that she could portray the company in a negative light. That's so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a book. It was called The Killing of Karen Silkwood. It's like 2000, I think, by Richard Rashk. And he wrote that the soluble type of plutonium found in her body came from a production area of the plant that had not been accessed in four months by anyone. Yeah. Well, I mean, could she possibly have been sneaking around in there trying to gather this evidence? I mean, it's always a possibility. Yes. I would honestly think to go to the places that were stagnant or untouched or closed off, you know, like maybe someone overlooked something that's in here. I don't know. But what would she have to do in there in order for that amount to be ingested? Right. Like, did she go into this place that had been like no one has been into in four months she found popcorn i was like yummy i don't i mean i I just don't understand i can see how like you were saying like you breathe it in you can't help what you breathe in because you have to breathe but that like the alpha the alpha particles affect your lungs and ingestion affects your like your liver your your organ function so that's different completely different yeah yeah So she's not only being contaminated by air, but she's also ingesting it. She's being contaminated two different ways, and no one can figure out how. Say, for instance, I work in a medical lab, (laughs) and I'm around all kinds of specimens all day long, and I have to uncap them and use pipettes and da-da-da. And so I'm processing, well, I am not allowed to have food or beverage in my lab. It is a biohazard. My whole area is a biohazard. So there is a there is a designated refrigerator for my food and drinks. Okay. That's out of my sight. If where I'm working is a dangerous environment, especially when it comes to cross-contamination or digestion, if that's dangerous for me, then my food and drinks are somewhere else. So they probably had, a, it's a plant, you're in a union. I'm sure they had like a break room. Oh yeah, for sure. I can't help but wonder if someone was with her, her food. You know, or her drink, like putting something in her, like her Coke bottle or whatever. I'm glad that you brought that up because so word was getting around at this point that she was looking into these things. She was asking questions. Pretty much everyone kind of knew there was something going on with Karen and that the boss people didn't like what she was doing. Not only that. But you have to think about this is a small town and this plant gave a lot of people in that town jobs that they wouldn't otherwise have. Really good paying jobs that they wouldn't otherwise have. If she blows the whistle on this plant, it could be shut down indefinitely, which would mean that a bunch of these workers are out of jobs and their families go hungry. It was suspected that's another part of the conspiracy theory is that someone another just another worker was actually contaminating her because they were afraid that she was going to get their plant shut down and that they were going to be out of jobs i have a clip from time magazine from when kermagee had claimed that she had contaminated herself that she had like smeared plutonium on her bologna and ate a bologna and cheese sandwich with it on there so stupid anyway this is from the new york or the the time magazine in september 74 defense attorney william paul argued last week that she was emotionally unstable and possibly had been affected by the use of tranquilizers paul said she had become deeply involved in a bitter fight between her union and the company and charged that she had set out to prove the plant was dangerous by making herself seriously ill 
she was, he suggested, kinky, end quote. What? The lengths that these people will go to cover their own asses so that they can keep making money is insane to me. Oh, my God. So about this time when all of this stuff was kind of hitting the fan, she finally told a close friend that she had actually assembled all the documentation that she needed for her claims, including company papers. How she got this stuff, I have no idea. She never says to anyone how she got any of it or what the actual evidence was. But she told one of her really good friends, I have a envelope that has, or not an envelope, like a manila envelope, a folder that has all of this evidence in it. And I'm going to take it to David Burnham, who was a New York Times journalist, and he was going to publish it. So she told a friend this, and literally the next day, she leaves for a union meeting, and this was November 13th, 1974. She leaves for a union meeting at a cafe in Crescent, Oklahoma. Another attendee of that meeting later testified that she had a binder and a packet of documents with her. She got into her car. She set that big pile of things next to her in the passenger seat. And she left to go to Oklahoma City, which is about 30 miles away, where she was to meet Burnham, who was the New York Times reporter, and Steve Wadka, which was her official, her official of her union's national office. And she was ready that night. She was going to blow the lid on everything. She leaves for a union meeting. And this was November 13th, 1974. She leaves for a union meeting at a cafe in Crescent, Oklahoma. Another attendee of that meeting later testified that she had a binder and a packet of documents with her. She got into her car. She set that big pile of things next to her in the passenger seat and she left to go to Oklahoma city, which is about 30 miles away where she was to meet Burnham, who was the New York times reporter and Steve Wadka, which was her official, her official of her union national office. And she was ready that night. She was going to blow the lid on everything. She didn't make it to Oklahoma city. She barely made it out of town her car was found in a ravine. She had supposedly run off the road. She had struck a culvert on the east side of the highway. And this was State Highway 74 going towards OKC. So apparently when she hit this culvert, she hit it head on, did not survive the crash, according to official documents, whatever. But also, according to official documents, she was only going 45 miles an hour when she hit this culvert. So a truck driver who was driving by saw her taillights down in this ravine. And what happened was like, so there's like this drain that goes under the highway and there's these two giant cement. I mean, I'm trying to explain a culvert to people. Two giant cement things on the side of the road. And it, it basically lets rainwater and stuff wash underneath the highway so it doesn't go over the highway and flood it. What happened was she apparently went off of the highway over one side of the culvert and down and hit the cement of the other culvert on that side. And it smashed up her car. It was just like a little Honda. It smashed up the front of her car like completely it was almost smashed up to the steering wheel and pieces of like the concrete and stuff from the culvert actually fell off and stuff. But they say she was only going 45 miles an hour. Now I'm just throwing this out here, but uh, I have witnessed people going 60 ish and hit side rails and culverts and stuff like that and be totally fine. I mean, 45 miles an hour without like without a traumatic brain injury or 
a severed spine of some, you know, whiplash event. Yeah. Like what, what happened? I don't know. No one knows. This truck driver saw her taillights and apparently got a hold of a state trooper. The state trooper came down and the state trooper actually remembered that there were papers and documents all over the scene that had been thrown out of the car when it hit the culvert. And he actually remembered picking all of those papers up and putting them in a stack and putting them back inside the car. Later, no one can find the documents. The documents mysteriously vanish. Sure they did. Yeah. I don't think that the state trooper was in on it at all, but I think somebody may have been watching that scene and got what they came to get. Like, so if she was being followed, the truck driver would have seen someone nearby. Or maybe they pulled off on like a side road. Because it's like, how did he not stay there at the scene? I, see, that's what I don't think he did. Because from what I understand, he happened upon this wreck and then turned around. Because, I mean, this is the 70s. I believe he turned around to go call like 911. Oh, my God. The 70s thing. I was like, because... I mean, I just figure, like, on a CB, you could get an emergency call out somehow, some way. There has to, you, I don't know. Maybe. It's possible that's what he did, but I didn't see anywhere that said, like, how he got the state trooper there. I mean, did someone show up on the scene and was like, hey, I'm her boyfriend and I just need to get her purse out of the car? Like, we don't know. Yeah, they could have just looked like, you know, passersby trying to help clean up the scene or something. Like, I don't what we do know is that she had the documentation that it was not there by the time that the car was taken off the highway. Also, there's the fact that her back bumper, I believe on the left side, was smushed and dented and scratched. And there were trace amounts of a different color paint than her car. So a lot of people's theory is that she was actually ran off the road, like that somebody smashed into the back of her car. Uh-huh. Like pit maneuvered her. Yes. Were they trying to kill her? Did they know that it would kill her? We don't know. The state trooper found quaaludes in her purse. He also found cannabis in her purse, which we both know cannabis ain't going to kill her. So they did the autopsy. The autopsy revealed trace amounts of alcohol and quaaludes. They concluded that she had taken the quaaludes, that she had drank alcohol, and that she had fallen asleep at the wheel. And that was the reason why she ran off the road. This was like the official police conclusion. Her death was ruled an accident, just like straight up. But did you, did you say trace amounts? Yeah, trace amounts of alcohol, but they had actually found 0.35 milligrams of quaaludes in her blood, which was an amount almost twice twice the amount of the recommended dosage. Somebody had drugged her, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it's it's those are both downers. That's a sedative. Which makes sense of why she was going 45 miles an hour. <laughs> Listen, I'm on just, a highway I'm, in Oklahoma. I'm just chilling. <laughs> Weird. The question is, how did they drug her? How did they get that stuff into her system? The only place that she had been that day was that restaurant that she had left literally right before she she had left to go to Oklahoma City. So now a new conspiracy theory from me is, well, someone at that freaking restaurant during that meeting had to have done it. It doesn't make sense. Like when you're when you're when you're a very strong-minded person, the last thing that you want to be is out of control whenever you need to be in control. You need to be vigilant. Yeah, that's strange. And situationally aware when you're in, you know, I mean, I just don't think that she would have done that. So they found skid marks on the road suggesting that she was trying to get back onto the road after she was hit from behind. And that I guess she like just couldn't manage to do it. She overcorrected or something. All of that information that I just gave you and the police were like, it was an accident. 
whenever it comes to police work, we're telling one story and we're talking about one accident, one incident. These people do not know what she's going through. These people don't know what the hell is up, you know, with her and her job and the drama and the documents are now gone. So they're just like, you know, she had a fucking car crash. She's got this in her bloodstream. I'm done. I mean, and, and her family claimed that this car that she had was like brand new that they checked her insurance. She had never had an accident with it. Like she had never filed any claims on it. So it should have been in perfect condition on the back bumper. And here we are. Oh, and shit. I forgot to tell you this. So when they found all of that in her, in her apartment, all of the amounts of plutonium and shit that they found in there, there was never any traces of it found in her car. Let that sink in for a minute. Because what does that tell you? If she was contaminated at the plant, like if she brought it home. How did she get home if it's not in her car? Exactly. How did she get the plutonium home if the plutonium is not in her car? I mean, if there's trace amounts on her fucking toothbrush, there's going to be some on the steering wheel. (gasps) That's how she, maybe that's how she ingested it. What if they planted it on her toothbrush? Oh, that's a really good point, actually. It's a, an effective way of getting something straight in a person's mouth. I mean, but how, okay, yes. But how would you get into this apartment to contaminate all this stuff when there's two other people living there? Yeah, I'm pretty sure at one point that the roommate had confessed that she was like in love with Karen. And her and Drew had fought about it. I mean, it might not have even been like some major conspiracy theory. He's just mad and getting at her. Yeah, he's he's I mean, I don't I don't know how else it could have gotten into the house without with getting past two people, well, technically three people, unless they all three worked the same shift, which I don't think that they did there at the end. I'm pretty sure when they transferred her, it was a completely different shift. And of course, old dude had quit by that time and he was just kind of hanging out at the house but there was a documentary that I saw on YouTube that I didn't get to watch but it they had done a bunch of interviews with him I'm kind of curious now to go in there and finish watching that and see what he has to say for himself (laughs) they did that autopsy right but the family like wasn't happy with that autopsy because it was basically the plant paying the people who did the autopsy to do the autopsy. So the family wasn't happy about that and got a independent autopsy done. And that autopsy revealed that contrary, contrary to the Los Almos lab report, she had actually been exposed to dangerously high levels of radiation. And because of concerns about contamination, the Atomic Energy Commission and the state medical examiner requested their own analysis of her organs, and much of the radioactive contamination was found in her lungs. So she had mostly inhaled. That's what did the most damage, is the stuff that she inhaled. And her tissues, when her tissues were further examined, the highest deposits were found in the contents of her gastrointestinal tract. Jesus. (laughs) Demonstrating that she had ingested it, which we talked about. But remember when I told you that plutonium had just gone missing? Did I tell you how much had gone missing? No, no, you just said quite a bit. 66 pounds of plutonium had been quote unquote misplaced. So like a large dog. But if literally a period made on a piece of paper can kill you with cancer. What are you going to do with 66 pounds of plutonium? I just think that's insane. Like this whole freaking case is insane. So public suspicions had led to a federal investigation and then they found that all of that was missing. And of course they're like, we don't know what happened to it. They're like, don't you like track your plutonium? They're like, I I mean, (laughs) what the hell? How do you run this place? I don't understand. A year after her death, the plant actually closed down. And this kind of partly vindicated her claims because according to Time Magazine, so so Time Magazine just ran with this story anyway because they knew that she was coming to meet them with all this stuff, right? And she never showed up. And I believe at one point they actually showed up 
and also the boyfriend showed up, mm, there it is, at the scene when she crashed. And so according to Time, quote, Westinghouse, which had been buying its fuel rods, complained of their poor quality and refused to renew its contract. So when they started blowing this stuff out of the water, all these places that were actually buying from this plant were like, we're not going into contract with them anymore. And when they lost all that business, they eventually sold to a company that like not too long later literally went bankrupt. And so they ended up just closing the plant down. Okay. This plant with, with all of this, like literally Karen's story was all over the news in the seventies after this happened all over it. Everyone knew then about the plutonium, the radiation, uranium, all this stuff. Yet this plant sat there for 19 years without being decontaminated or decommissioned. It was not decontaminated or decommissioned until 1994. How do you let something that radioactive that you know had that many issues with all the leaks and all of that stuff that they never shut down to fix. It's just sitting there leaking for 20 years. I want to tell you about uh, Karen's dad real quick, who filed a lawsuit against Kermagee after her death. He couldn't, he, he didn't have enough evidence to say that they like caused her death per se, but he did have enough to sue for negligence for like all the plutonium and all that stuff exposure. They decided to file for all the things they found in her system that stemmed from the plant itself. And the trial was held in 1979. It lasted for 10 months. Why? I have no idea. And this was the longest, apparently the longest civil, civil trial up to this point in Oklahoma history. Jerry Spence was the chief attorney for the estate and William Paul was the chief attorney for Kerr-McGee. The estate presented evidence that the autopsy provided Silkwood was contaminated with plutonium at her death, basically kind of said that if she hadn't died in this car accident, she was basically given a death sentence anyway from all of the contamination. They had witnesses and former employees and all this stuff. They had, I mean, they had scientists, all, all kinds of people. Eventually, they were given damages and they got $10.5 million, which is pretty substantial. They got, they, they actually got it. They got it. The jury rendered its verdict of $500,000 in damages and $10 million in punitive damages. The plant actually appealed. Kermagee appealed in federal court. And the judgment was reduced to $5,000. The estimated value of Silkwood's losses in property was $5,000. They eventually did this whole thing again, and it was overturned, and they settled out of court for, I believe it was 1.3 mil? 1.38 million. 1984 is when the U.S. Supreme Court restored the original verdict in Silkwood versus Kerr-McGee Corp., ruling that the NRC's exclusive authority to set safety standards did not foreclose the use of state tort remedies, and they settled out of court for $1.38 million, also admitting no liability, which I think is just absolute bullshit. Wow. How can you settle out of court and say, oh, by the way, I know this kind of makes us seem guilty because we're settling out of court, but we're not, though. Oh, 10.5 million down to 1.38 million. Again, I wanted to say that Kermagee during that whole time had basically gone out of its way to downplay the dangers with the capital letters of radiation is safe. Once the metal enters the body through the nose or mouth, it fires a continuous barrage of subatomic bullets into soft tissue wreaking havoc with cellular machinery. Caught in a lung, a dust-sized speck plutonium, a particle the size of a period on a piece of paper, can cause cancer. And they were like, radiation is safe, guys. After all of this, a former employee who worked in the plant for 18 years came out with a statement. He said, and I quote, 
I think they underbid the job because after that, it was just push, push, push. Transients and students were often hired to work in the plant, he explains, and most workers were generally unaware of the menace of plutonium because they were improperly trained. Despite the warning alarm, they did not object when they were forced to work in contaminated air for days at a time. According to him, several workers quit or were fired without ever realizing that their health may have been jeopardized. The turnover rate was high. During a 10-month period in 1974, 99 out of 287 employees had to be replaced. We were told to operate or else, he explains. We didn't have a choice. At one point in early 1973, after a fire filled the air with radioactive dust, he says he confronted his superior. The place was highly contaminated, highly. There was no way the place should have been allowed to run. So I told him no, and he said, let's go out front, which meant I was done. So I just put the people back in there. Of course, they put the people in protective gear, but protective gear is only ex-efficiency. It was production first, and to hell with the rest of us. That's so corporate America. Oh, yeah. And, of course, I want to leave this in your brain, because we're drawing near to the end. Between 1970 and 1975... There were 574 reported exposures to plutonium at the Cimarron plant. Less than 100 were reported by Kermagee at the time of exposure. You can come to your own conclusions. Guess we'll never know, conspiracy theorists. I'm going to go down this rabbit hole. (laughs) Absolutely. It's it's for science. (laughs) for science Science. (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness you've reached the end of our episode all suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast do we have an outro? that's our outro isn't it?